I have a few people that I wanted to introduce before I get started this morning, and uh, they work with me down at the uh, youth group at Evangelical Free Church, and uh, it is a position we call a lead associate. Basically, these men oversee a class of about 100 to 150 high school students. Uh, they oversee a volunteer staff of about 15 to 20 adult leaders. And uh, where is Juan Ricoy? Juan, are you here? Juan's right back there. He's our senior lead associate. And... Uh, He's been with me the past uh, four years. And then Carl Lockman up here. And uh, we used to have a sophomore lead associate that we plucked from Masters College, a uh, guy named John Fonville. But this struggling uh, church out in the valley uh, snatched him back, Grace Community Church. But John Fonville used to be with me. Is he here? He was going to try to make it. Well, seminary's tough, so he wasn't able to be here. But uh, he is now going to be at Grace, uh, working in the college ministry. And then finally, uh, one of the graduates from last year, Jeremy Clark. Where are you, Jeremy? There he is. In fact, uh, we're trying to pluck another uh, master's graduate, uh, a guy named Billy Tarkas. So there's kind of a master's connection here. And so uh, I also am not really here to speak in chapel. I'm part of the pulpit committee at Evangelical Free Church. We're looking for a senior pastor. Does anybody want to follow Chuck Swindoll? Wouldn't it be great to fill his shoes? But uh, I'm really glad to be here this morning. And uh, Joe asked me uh, about a month ago if I would speak in chapel. And uh, I said so with fear and trepidation. And I'll tell you why. I, I've had the opportunity to be in ministry a little over 20 years. And I've spoken in, in a lot of different venues. But every time you go to a new place, it's a little nerve-wracking. In fact, last night I was laying my bed in, uh, my head in the bed and my wife is going... Why are you still up? Because I normally uh, kind of go out about 11.30, and it's like 12.30, and my eyes are still wide open. I said, I am going to Master's College. And she goes, big deal. And I said, you don't understand, honey. I'm a Biola grad. I'm going into enemy territory. But uh, no, that is not true. And uh, But she goes, what are you so nervous about? And I said, because I'll tell you, honey, those people love the Word. They have a reputation of studying it deeply. Freshman students, no Hebrew. And uh, I said, what am I going to say to them? I said, I'm nervous. And she said, don't be nervous. Just don't tell any bodily function jokes like all the other youth pastors. I said, honey, that's all I got, you know. But uh, I'll try to contain it because I am a youth pastor and I, I do want to be somewhat dignified. That's why I grew this goatee. Actually, this is my only way I could have a midlife crisis. And... Uh, I'm 38 years old and I'm looking out at people that were born when I started ministry. I'm going, oh man, I'm getting old. But uh, there's no gray in here yet, so we'll see how we do. But uh, this morning, uh, I want to just share with you a little bit of my background. Uh, I grew up in Laguna Beach, a surfer dude town, and uh, just down the way, and uh, loved living there. And uh, growing up there, the only problem was I didn't quite connect within the home situation. Uh, my mother wasn't real good at choosing husbands. Uh, she married three straight alcoholics in a row. And uh, in fact, my dad was her third marriage, uh, and that lasted about five years. But like most of you, I connected greatly with my father. He was my hero. And uh, he was the guy that, uh, that I like to hang around with, that uh, when he came home at night after work, man, I was with him, and I just hung on to him like, you know, a parasite. And uh, I remember him teaching me boxing. 
and uh, he put these gloves on me and, and, you know, just weighing me down. I just remember him, him going, okay, you know, he's showing me how to hit and how to block and stuff like that. And I remember this one moment that uh, my mother said, it's dinner time, and my dad turned toward the kitchen. I'm five years old. My dad's turned toward the kitchen. This is my time. I just swung with all the weight of a five-year-old. And as he turned back around, I caught him right in the nose. And it just, boom! And all of a sudden, blood starts pouring out of his nose. And I thought, I'm dead. Five years old, I'm dead, you know? My dad just looks at me and I thought, this is it, you know? And all of a sudden, he just grabs me and stuffs his nose in my face and rubs the blood all over my face. Great dad, great dad. I will never forget when he, uh, he taught me uh, how, to, how to swim. <laughs> he really didn't teach me because all he did, he grabbed my bathing suit, gave me what we call in youth ministry a Melvin, and, uh, and then you know, took me by the hair and threw me in the pool. And I'm like, just like, ah, you know. And, uh, and finally I got to the side of the pool. I was so mad at him. He said, now you know how to swim. And uh, I thought, he's great, you know. He said, now I'll teach you how to dive. And I'm thinking, oh, man. So, hey, you trust your dad. So I remember going to the low dive, and he put me on his shoulders. And, you know, we popped off the low dive a few times. And I'm thinking, this is pretty cool. And then one time he dove in, and I'm going, this is great. He says, let's try the high dive. I'm going, hey, it's dad. You trust dad, you know. So I climb up the ladder, and this is cool, you know. I'm way up there, you know, on the Empire State Building, you know. And so my dad puts me on his shoulders. Now, the high dive to a five-year-old is high enough. Now I'm on his shoulders, and he starts eking his way to the end of the board. Now, a five-year-old, you don't have real good bladder control. <laughs> Nothing happened, no. <laughs> We're eking out, and I'm looking down, and I just finally, as a five-year-old, I was so scared, I just let him have it. All of a sudden... He's feeling real warm on his back. And he just jumps. I hit sideways, practically knocked myself out. But we laughed until we cried. It was the funniest thing. But it was time with Dad. It was about five weeks after that incident that uh, I got home after school. About five o'clock, my dad used to come home. He was in construction. I would always wait for his, his truck. And uh, and it was had these big headers on it. And... This time, uh, I didn't hear the truck, and it got to be about 7 o'clock, dinner time, and I asked Mom where Dad was, and she said, uh, he's not coming home tonight. I thought, okay, you know, I can handle that one night, you know, alone from Dad. So the next night hit, same, same answer. Next night, same answer. By the end of the week, finally, I looked at my mom, and I was screaming, and I was crying, where is Dad? And then I just remember those words, he's not coming home. To a five-year-old, those were the toughest words I had ever heard. In fact, as far as my connection with my father, that was it. He walked out of my life, no phone calls, no letters, no contact whatsoever. In fact, it wasn't until I was 18 years old that uh, my father uh, called. I was a freshman at Biola College, and it was a miraculous situation. He called uh, my house. I had been praying that God would let me know where my real dad was, and he called me in the dorms, and uh, he was living 10 minutes away from the college. And here, he hadn't seen me go into, into kindergarten, and now I was in college. And I remember driving over to his house and being able to sit down with him for about five hours. I remember asking him, 
you know, at the end of five hours, telling him about my life, him telling me about his. I asked my father, why did, why did you never call? Why did you never write? Why, why no contact? And he simply looked at me and he said, he said, Eric, he said, I should have never gotten married. And he said, frankly, you were a mistake. And it was after that comment he walked out of my life again. I look back at that incident. I look back at those years growing up. And uh, I remember that there were three things that I was struggling with that I think a lot of us struggle with as we're growing up. First of all, who we belong to. That's a key question all of us have to ask. Who loves us when all else fails, when friends walk away from us, when, when, when we're going through catastrophic events, when other people are criticizing us, when the pressure comes, where do we belong? Where do we, we find love? Where do we find meaning? Second question is, where do we find truth? You see, for me growing up, there wasn't a lot of truth growing up in an alcoholic family. You see, my mother went for it again, married a fourth person. He was an alcoholic. There wasn't a lot of truth being flowed around in our house. There was a lot of hypocrisy. And you couldn't find out what absolute truth was. You couldn't find answers to the significant questions of life. And there was a third thing that I, I was struggling with, and that is, what do I do with my life? I felt worthless. I felt like my life was meaningless. In fact, going through junior high and high school, I was into the whole drug scene. I started when I was a fifth grader. I was an alcoholic. By, by high school, I was selling drugs because basically that was the only way I could afford my daily habit. And I, I was searching, what am I supposed to do with my life? I was thinking back to the life of Kurt Cobain, who uh, most of you know was, uh, uh, was in, a, in a band. And uh, he said something very interesting. In a suicide note a couple of years ago, he said, I'm too much of an erratic person and I don't have the passion anymore. So remember, it's better to burn out than it is to fade away. I think by the time I was 17 years of age, I was ready to just burn out. I was so much into drugs, and, uh, but I was fortunate enough that God in His grace reached down to me through a youth pastor who took enough time to care for me and to love me and to share with me the gospel. If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 5. This was one of the first stories I ever read as a believer. And the question that I want to ask this morning is this, what on earth am I doing? Or what on earth am I supposed to be doing? I believe that's a question all of us have to ask. It's no coincidence that we were born. It's no coincidence that you are here at Master's College. First of all, a little background. Obviously you know that uh, prior to this story in chapter 5, Jesus has done a miraculous uh, uh, situation, or been involved in a miraculous situation in which he has calmed the seas, where uh, the disciples going over from Capernaum were going to the land of the Gerizines. And uh, the disciples knew exactly where they were going. This was the place of the tombs. It was night. They, were, they had, been, had a busy day in ministry. And uh, as they're going over, you'll remember the story, the, uh, there, there came a storm. Now, we don't know the source of this storm. Some commentators say that maybe Satan himself brought on this storm. But as you remember, Jesus was so tired, being human, he was asleep on the ship. 
and, uh, and the storm was so great that waves began to crash over the boat. Now, these, uh, some of these disciples were rugged fishermen, but it was so rough that even they were scared, they were terrified for their very lives, even though God in the bod was sitting in the ship, or laying in the ship, going to sleep. And so they're wondering, what's going on here? Well, they start getting terrified, and they decide to wake up the Savior. And so they wake him up, and they're scared, and they say, you know, Lord, don't you know we're perishing? <laughs> I love what, what, what verse 39 in chapter 4 says, and being amused... <laughs> You ever wonder that in our terrified moments that Jesus might not be amused at our fear? I think there's times that He just goes, Why are you so terrified? I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. I'm always with you. Don't be afraid. He looks at the disciples. He's, he's amused. And He simply looks at the waves and He rebukes the wind and the sea. And He simply says, Hush, be still. <laughs> I love this because I love to water ski. It must have been tumultuous at that point that he said that. And all of a sudden when he said, hush, be still, it was just like, whew. three weeks ago I was at Lake Mead and I love to ski early in the morning. And uh, reason being, there's usually no boats out on the water. I just wait till just that sun is about to creep up over the mountain. And uh, I, I look at my wife and I go, hit it. And she hits it. And then all of a sudden you're carving the water. And the water is just like glass. That's what it must have been like. Imagine if you were one of those disciples. You would have just been blown away. Why? Because this man, this Jesus whom you've been following, who is a great teacher, now you see has control over all of nature. Shouldn't surprise him. He created all things. But they are, they are just amazed. And what, what, is it, what do they say? Verse 41, and they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? Well, now they're about to find something else about him. Something they had never seen before. Looking at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerizines. Now they knew what this was about. They were scared. They were afraid. It's evening. And when he had come out of the boat, speaking of Christ... Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now, I have this picture. I have a very vivid mind. Jesus comes out of the boat. Now, if you're a disciple and you're a little bit afraid, you've seen what Jesus has done on the sea, but now you're in the place of the tombs, literally a mortuary, cemetery, if you will. They're right behind him. He's walking up on the land. They're probably right behind him, probably holding on to his tunic, man. And they're scared. All of a sudden, this man, and, and we know from Matthew, actually there were two. Two men come running down, and Mark describes them very well. They were men with unclean spirits. Obviously, these were men who were demonized, demon-possessed. And he, speaking of this one, because for some reason, Mark just identifies this one. He focuses in on this one. And he had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. <laughs> because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. In verses 2 through 5, we have the perfect illustration of a junior hire. 
Bottom line, this is no ordinary guy. This is a guy that is out of control. He's demonized. That's what makes him out of control. For some reason, maybe, he had opened himself up for the influence of these demons. When a man lives a reprobate life, he is prone to sin. It opens himself up to sin and to demons. And this man certainly was in this case and probably the other demonized man as well. What on earth are we doing? I believe one of the first questions you and I have to take care of is, who do we belong to? This man and the other demonized man belong to Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. They had chosen this life, and now they were in his control. Jesus was about to help them belong to someone else, and that was himself. Look at, what, look at verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was also asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated, uh, entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. What an incredible story. I mean, this is one of those stories that we have a really hard time in the American culture. Why? We don't see as greatly the kind of demonic activity that you might in, in third world countries. And uh, we don't see this kind of thing happening. And this was, was, was something that wasn't so characteristic in Jesus' ministry. But certainly there's a poignant thing to be seen here. These two men were demonized. They were a part of Satan's world. You know, sometimes when we come to know Christ, we, we will paint a picture that it wasn't that bad. But you know, apart from Christ, I'm no different than that demonized man. Some people wish they had a greater testimony. That, you know, maybe they were a pimp in New York before they came to Christ. Or, or maybe they, they were an alcoholic, or they were into drugs, or, you know, their life was a waste and they were suicidal. Well, my, my son just recently came to know Christ. Just three months ago, he's five years old. And uh, while we were driving, or my wife was driving down the road, my son in the back seat says, Mom, I want Jesus to be my Savior. My mom goes, oh, okay. <laughs> she, she pulls off the side of the road and leads my son to Christ. Well, my son doesn't have a great testimony of sin prior to coming to know Christ. Well, I beat my sister. I stole a Twinkie out of the cupboard, you know. We look back, and for some of us, we've been Christians a long time. My wife has been a Christian since she was five. And I remember when I first met her, she says, you know, I don't have a testimony like you. I said, oh, yes, you do. You are no less a reprobate than I was. I just was a reprobate longer and got into more sins. So we don't want to, you know, look at this story and say, oh, that's this demonized guy. Well, until we come to know Christ, we're a part of the prince of the power of the air. For these two men, they came to Christ. Interestingly enough, they bow down before Him. Demons, man, they're some of the most theologically straight creations. What do they say? 
What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew who He was. And they, they did the proper act. They knelt before Him. At the end of time, they will all kneel before Christ. Every one of God's creations will kneel before Christ. And now they're before Christ proclaiming that He is the Son of the Most High God. Now, what does He do? These demons within Him, and, and they said that their name was Legion, which basically could mean 6,000. As many as 6,000 demons were tormenting them. We don't know exactly. All we can say is they were being demonized, whether it was one or it was 6,000. Now, Jesus, looking at them, looking at this man who was demonized, granted a request by the demons. For, for some reason, He granted the, the request that they might enter the swine. And He wasn't going to send them into the abyss. We don't know exactly why. Maybe it was, it was for a testimony so that the people, especially the, 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 the two herdsmen, that, or the herdsmen that were overseeing these pigs, that they could go proclaim what had happened. Well, basically, Jesus with these demons, cast them into the swine. They enter the swine, and what does it say? 2,000 of them run down this hill. Now imagine you're the pig herders. I don't know what else to call them, swine herders or whatever. Imagine you're the swine herders. What are you thinking about this time? What the heck is going on? And they watch their, 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 their living run down this slope and jump into the water. Basically a swine dive. Dumb joke. You laugh more than my high schoolers did at that one. But uh, they, they jump into the water, and as you know about pigs with short legs, they don't swim real well. I imagine they just went, you know, back up, you know, or, or stomach up, and they just drowned. Now, you're pig herders. You've just seen what had happened. You go running, running and telling people what had happened, and that's what we see in verse 15. Bottom line, these men could not contain what it was that they had seen. Excuse me, verse 14. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. What it was that had happened is, these two men, these two men who were a part of Satan's world, who were demonized, now were very different men. Very different. Why? Because Christ had gotten a hold of them. Whereas before they, they belonged to the domain of darkness, now they belong to the domain of God's beloved Son, the domain of light. Whereas before they were naked, they were insane, they were gashing themselves with stone, now we read in verse 15, what were they doing? And they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed, and what was he doing? He was sitting down, he was clothed, he was in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I looked in the first part of chapter 5, when I first began to study this, I asked myself, who was it that was binding these men? Who were the people that were putting these shackles on them, chaining them? I believe it was the very people that these herdsmen went out to tell, to tell what Jesus had done. And now these people came and observed something. A miracle. A miracle of a transformed life. 
You know, I know at Master's College, they're preparing you for ministry. Not that every one of you, 100% of you, are going to go into vocational Christian ministry, but God calls every one of us to ministry. Whether we go into teaching, whether we go into, into athletics, whether we go into the business field, God has called us for the purpose of ministry. For the past 22 years that I've been a Christian, God has given me the privilege of being a clay pot of having the opportunity to be a part of and to observe a transformed life. And I'm telling you, after 22 years, I never get tired of it. I love to see my Jesus come into a life and to transform him from the inside out. These two demon-possessed men were so insane. They were so out of their minds but they were able to answer a basic question in their life that very day that they met Jesus because now they could answer who they truly belonged to and who truly loved them. And that was Jesus. They could also answer a second question and that was, where do you find truth? Where do you find absolutes? I work with high school students and we've got some great students in our high school group and we've got so, some not so great, maybe some potential great but I see in the, in the hearts and the eyes of high school students a desire to know truth. Students that are wanting answers to the important questions of life. Two weeks ago, we were having a Bible study in the sophomore class. John Fonville was up in front and he was saying goodbye to the sophomore class. And as we closed in prayer, there was these two guys that were sitting in the back. And as John was praying, they were hurling obscenities about God as he was praying. Well, obviously, we're not about to let that sit. And so the two men were confronted. The young men were confronted. They're 15 years old, and they've got some big questions. You see, as they've been going along in churches, and they've been looking out at this world, they feel that Christians are hypocrites. That Christianity doesn't have answers. That Christianity can't even answer the basic questions of life. Well, they came last week, and, and we began to have some conversations the two guys and myself. And I said, have you really ever searched the Scriptures and found answers to the questions you're asking? I said, are you willing to look? I said, you tell me you know the Bible, but as I've asked you the basic questions along the lines of on what basis would God allow you to, to be in heaven, you have no answers. When I ask you what the Gospel is, you've got no answers. When I ask you how did the world come into existence, you have no answers. If you have no answers, my guess is you haven't really looked. I said, are you willing to look at the truths within the Word of God? And they said, yes. And you know, it's not until we're willing to, to open up and to really listen to Jesus that we get the answers to life. Where do we find absolute truth? We find it in Christ. But I want to share with you, 22 years after becoming a Christian, I'm still looking and I'm still studying. Because there's still a lot more questions than I've got answers. I will never forget when my wife and I, uh, I had just gotten out of seminary and, uh, and we were looking forward to starting a family because my family life was an atrocity growing up. I couldn't wait that God would allow me to be married and then to raise some children. And so we got out of seminary and, uh, and we started practicing. And, uh, and bottom line, my wife conceived. And I, I'll tell you, that day that she told me that little pregnancy test and it turned blue, 
I'm just going, yes, I don't know, there's something about that moment. You feel like, I'm a part of something great, you know, and, uh, and my wife goes, you know, honey, it's all right, it's all right. Yes, we are going to have a child. And, and I, I couldn't wait to tell the high school group because they had been praying for us. And, and so I got to the high school group Wednesday night and I said, ladies and gentlemen, it's happened. It's happened. And, and the kids were kind of looking at me. I said, my wife is pregnant. Yes. You know, and the group stands up and they applaud. Standing ovation. I'm going, you know, you know, to God be the glory, you know. And uh, <laughs> I had just a little part in this. And, uh, but to God be the glory. Well, it was about three days later on Friday that my wife said, you know, honey, I'm not feeling real good. And uh, I think we need to go to the doctor. I said, well, it's, it's probably the flu or something like that. And uh, so we headed to the doctor, and I went with her. And, uh, and so we were there for about three hours. And they were running tests, and my wife didn't try to tell me what was going on. And so the doctor runs these tests, and then he puts, takes us into this private counseling room. And he said, uh, I need to let you know, uh, you've lost the baby. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. This, this is not God's plan. God, you took me through enough hell in my family. Not this. This doesn't fit. This cannot possibly be your plan. But it was. And we went through years. But like you, I have to keep asking, where do I find truth about this situation? I go back in the Scriptures. And I find out that I have a God who is with me in every moment of pain. I have a God who is sovereign, who brings about every deed in my life, whether good or bad. He is there. And His sovereign hand controls my life. And I have a God who, like with Mary and Martha, when their, their brother Lazarus had died, simply walked alongside of these two sisters and it said, Jesus wept because He felt for them. My God is a God of compassion and a God of love and a God who's powerful. And in His grace, for some reason, He gave me a son and a daughter. And I thank Him for that. But just like these two demonized men, they had to find absolute truth in Jesus. So do we, no matter how long we've been a Christian. They sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to them. Look at the people's response. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened uh, to them, or how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine. And then I thought, they're going to embrace Jesus. They're going to love Jesus. They're going to want this guy around. Why? Not just because he does these miracles, because he literally does something that nobody else has been able to do. You see, they had, they had bound these two men with chains. That's what society's answer was. In our society, when somebody's out of their mind, we send them to psychiatrists, to psychologists. That's our answer. Not that Christian psychology doesn't have a place, but that's our quick, rapid answer. But what they really needed was Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's where they found the truth. But the people responded. They began to entreat Him to depart from the region. And as He, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating Him that He might accompany Him. Now, I was looking at this, and, and 
I've asked myself this question. I remember when I was first a, a Christian, I asked myself this question. Why is it that when you and I make a decision for Christ, that, that Christ doesn't just whew, take us home? Why doesn't He just whew, zap us home? And in my toughest times as a Christian, and when the pain is severe, and the pressures are great, and life seems difficult, I wonder, Jesus, just take me home. I just want to be with you. I want to be at your feet. I want the pain to be over and the struggle to be over. And I thought in this story when I first read it that Jesus would take this demon possessed or formerly demon possessed man and just embrace him and say, Yeah, come on, follow me. You can be with me. But we read in verse 19, But he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. <laughs> Verse 20, In obedience He went away and, pro- and, procla- and, and went to proclaim in Decapolis, the city of Ten, what great things Jesus had done for Him. And everyone marveled. <laughs> the three great questions in life, who do we belong to? For these two men, they now belong to Christ. Second, where do we find absolute truth that always lasts? It lasts and goes beyond the test of time. They found it in Jesus Christ. We find it in the Word of God. Thirdly, what do we do with our lives? Once Jesus transforms us, once He gives us the truth, what do we do with our lives? Huh. I love what he, what he tells them to do. Go home to your people and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. In other words, tell them about the transforming work that I have brought in your life. And by the way, folks, that isn't just when we come to know Christ. That happened for me on February 23rd, 1973, when I gave my heart to Christ. Went home that night, took about $600 worth of drugs, dug a hole, buried it. Put away all the pornography that I ever ever read. Jesus transformed my lips in terms of the profanity. Jesus began to, to, to cause me to walk in newness of life. But that walk has, has been 22 years now. But my hope is it will continue in obedience. I need to continue to let Jesus transform me. So I need to continue to talk about the transforming work that Christ has brought in my life. And then finally, how He had mercy on me. That moment of salvation where Jesus forgave me and He cleansed me. And he gave me new life. When I was a, a senior in high school, a guy came to our high school and he said, he said, you want to make some money for college? And I was going to go to that other struggling college down the way, Biola. And uh, I knew it cost more than masters. And, uh, but no, I'm just kidding. But no, maybe it does. But uh, I decided I'm going to go there. And my youth pastor said I had to go there if I was going to be a Christian. So you believe everything your youth pastor says. And uh, so I was going to go to Biola. And he said, you want to be a door-to-door salesman? I said, I'll do anything. He says, you'll make $4,000 in the summer. I said, great, I'm there. So I went down to Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, after I graduated, went to sales school and headed up to Elkhart, Indiana. And, uh, yeah, you vacation there? I, I found out Elkhart is the trailer capital of the world. Who cares? But, uh, but while I was uh, in the Midwest, 
God was about to transform my life, especially when it came to ministry and what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And uh, I was walking down this one street one day, and, and I had my little sales kit, and a uh, little powder blue sales kit. I was selling dictionaries to us, to students and their families. And this was in the summer. Good luck. And uh, so I'm walking down this one street, and there's these kids playing soccer. And uh, they were in junior high, high school age, and, and as I'm going from house to house, they're kind of looking at me. Finally, I get up to where they are, and this one kid walks up. He says, what's in the box? I said, dictionaries. He says, huh. Great. And he says, what are you doing with them? I said, I'm selling them. He says, don't sell them to my mom, man. And I said, well, you know, she probably won't buy them anyway. So, and, and so I go to his house. She didn't buy them. But uh, that's why he's playing soccer. But uh, anyway, uh, so I'm walking by him. <laughs> Nothing wrong. Just kidding. No, soccer is of God, you know. But uh, anyway, so I, as I'm walking, this kid goes... This kid goes, hey, don't go to that yellow house with the, you know, over there. And I said, why not? He said, you don't want to go there. Now, in sales school, they taught you something. If anybody tells you not to go somewhere, go there because you'll make a sale. And I had made a sale all morning, so I'm thinking, I'm going to go there. So I'm walking down, and, and I finally get to this yellow house with white picket fence. And I'm thinking, this looks like a nice place, you know. So I open the gate and walk down the sidewalk. Something else they taught you, don't go to the front door, go to the back porch. And so uh, I, I walk to the side of the house, go up on the porch, because that means you're a friend or a family member. And uh, so I knock on the door, and I'm thinking, who is in this house? You know, I, I'm all of a sudden starting to think of every horrible guy I've ever seen, every monster I've ever seen on TV or in movies. And I'm thinking, somebody lives here I don't think I really want to meet, but I had already knocked on the door. All of a sudden, who opens? I'm looking at this woman. She is about 80 years of age. And she had a knife! No, she didn't have a knife. She had no knife. And she goes, yes! And I said, hi ma'am, I'm Eric Hurd. I'm from the Southwest uh, uh, Book Company. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about something I'm selling that is fantastic. And uh, she goes, well, come on in. So she opens the sliding, you know, or the, the screen door. And so I, I walk in. And, uh, and she goes, well, why don't you sit down? And so I, I sit down at the at the table and in the kitchen. And she goes, would you like some lemonade? And I'm thinking, I'm all right to this point. This lemonade is probably laced with cyanide, you know. <laughs> but I'm thinking, hey, this 80-year-old lady's not going to kill me. And so I said, sure, ma'am, I'll, I'll take the lemonade. And she goes, just a second, you know. And she pours me the lemonade. And she goes, well, let me see those books, you know. So she starts looking at these dictionaries, and she's actually interested. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had a situation where, you know, you had a sense that somebody was coming into the room, but you didn't see that person with your eyes? I had that sense that somebody was behind me. With a knife! No, they didn't have a knife. But I had that sense that something was behind me. And so they taught you in sales school, if somebody comes into the room, stand up, put your hand out, shake their hand. So I stood up, put my hand out, and as I shook the hand of this person... I saw horror like something I had never seen before. Here was this young man who had had a disease or had a disease that uh, he referred to as turtle skin. Basically, everywhere on his body, his flesh, there were cracks in his skin. There were open wide and oil would seep from these cracks all over his face and his body. His hair had been falling out. 
And as I shook his hand, skin came off in my hand. And as a high school, or, or just graduating from high school, 18 years old, I didn't have a lot of maturity and I began to get sick to my stomach and I, I turned away from him. The woman, this grandma, sensing my uncomfortableness said, why don't we go into the living room? So we went into the living room. And uh, I just sat down and, and we began to talk. Found out this kid's name was Jonathan. He was a junior higher and he began to tell me his story. And he told me that when he was born, he got this disease. And he said his parents couldn't handle it. And they, they rejected him. And this woman adopted him, this grandmother. She adopted him. And as, he, as they lived in different places, and the reason I say different places, they could only live in, in one place for two years, even less, because the neighborhood kids would begin to do things. They would begin to throw rocks at Jonathan. They would never let him play with them. They would throw rocks through the windows. They would do all kinds of horrible things to these two people. And then, then Jonathan told me, I, I said, well, how has school been? He said, well, I, I really haven't been able to go to school. He goes, when I first got to go to kindergarten, or, or kindergarten, the principal came to my class and dismissed me and had my grandma pick me up because he said I was too much a disturbance to the rest of the class. He said, I tried school after school, but they wouldn't let me. And as I sat in this living room, I looked around, and there was three walls of floor to ceiling, nothing but books. I said, what are all these books? He says, this is, this is my education. And I said, uh, I said, this is an incredible library. He says, my grandmother from, the, from, from when I was five has read me most every one of these books. And I'm listening to this kid. I, I said, how do you handle this? I said, do you have any friends? And, and he, he smiled. He says, yeah, I have a friend. And he goes, no, no, I have two best friends. And I looked at this woman and he pointed to his grandmother and he says, she has raised me from the time that I was two years old. She has loved me like nobody else has loved me. And she has stood by me in all of this. And then I said, well, who's your other friend? And he said, Jesus is my best friend. He didn't know I had been a Christian just a year and I'm 18 years old. And he started talking to me about his relationship with Jesus. And I asked him what he most looked forward to. He says, I cannot wait to get to heaven. Because then Jesus will take away this body and give me a new body. And maybe Christians will even hug me. I walked out that sliding or, or that screen door that afternoon. And I just wept. And I said, God, would you please give me the opportunity to love the Jonathans of this world? To let them know of my Jesus and to let them know of His saving grace. Will you please grant me this prayer? And it was at that point that Jesus says, Oh, Eric, you don't know the plans I have for you. You don't even know. And for the past 21 years, God has granted me that prayer. What will you do with your life that will be significant? Will you work with the Jonathans of the world? There are more Jonathans than any of us could ever touch. But will you go for the challenge? Will you pray with me right now?
Father, these stories, as we read in Mark chapter 5, that are so familiar to many of us who have been Christians a long time, sometimes lose their edge because we don't look for what you're saying to us. Or maybe it comes at us in a new way. Father, we have seen within this passage the answering to that question, what are we to do here on earth? The first thing we need to do is to find the one who really loves us. And that's you, Father. You are the lover of your creation. You are the lover of mankind and womankind. And we're to find a relationship with you and find the one who loves us. But you also ask, answer that second question, and that is, where do we find truth in such a confusing world? A world that is full of grays, that doesn't understand black from white, that doesn't strive for absolute truth. And Father, you've answered that question, and that's within your word. It's all the truth that we need to know. And finally, Father, you answer the great question of life. What are we to do with our lives? What are we to do that is significant and that will matter? That when we get to the end of our lives, we can look back and say it's been a good life, a full life, a purposeful life. And that is the two things. First is to allow Christ to impact our lives every day. And finally, to go and tell a lost world about the mercy that you will provide because of their sin. Those are the things, Father, that matter in life. And I thank you for giving me a chance to come here to Master's College, to meet with friends, fellow members of the body of Christ, and to somehow remind them of something you keep reminding me. The thing that really matters is you. God, thank you for Master's College. Thank you for the students that are here. May you continue to raise up an army that will have an impact in the world. Thank you. Continue to make this light shine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.